podcast ain't played nobody uh, this time from a hotel, which happens more often than I think the listening audience probably knows, Bill. Um, if this podcast had a really big corporate sponsor and you and I could run around and have money fights, um, it would be the Hampton Inn, <laughs> without a doubt. Um, just generic but reliable coffee, decent bed, I think above average linens, um, and cleanliness and Wi-Fi. Those are the two biggest things. That's why I am a loyal Hampton Inn supporter, um, and that's why hopefully someone from their corporate office is hearing this right now. So, uh, so Hampton Inn ain't played nobody. Uh, it is the eve of signing day. I am on the road. I am um, shooing away the hotel maid as I speak. More of a motel maid, I guess, but no offense to them. Um, I am uh, I'm at a uh, location to be disclosed after embargo closes, which basically just means you'll know where I'm at in a couple days and the story goes up. Um, I can say that it is cold. So that is near it. So I am not in Miami. I am yeah, and it's actually here in Missouri, it's actually not, um, you know, terribly cold. Apparently tomorrow we're going to get crushed with snow, but today it's like, you know, 40 something. So whatever. Yeah, it's, um, it's cold. And um, I, I always question my sanity and the sanity of the sport in general on signing day, because when you're on a college campus or just when you're traveling in general and you start, you strike up that casual conversation with someone, you go, what do you do for a living? I write about college football. What are you doing right now? Well, I'm going to this campus. And they're like, for what? <laughs> and I say, so I can watch a fax machine <clears throat> with some coaches. And then you just get sort of a blank stare. And then they ask me who I think, should they take the under in the Super Bowl? That was a real conversation. I <laughs> So, you know, I would I would feel weirder about um, college football's oddities if we didn't just you know start step one of the presidential election process with coin tosses in Iowa. So um, yeah, it, hey, it, it worked to build this country. You bunch of commies seems pretty good. At, I mean, it seems pretty good for our sport. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, there's as as silly as sports can be. Politics is always sillier. So I'm okay. Yes. Uh, I did have a layover in the Charlotte airport yesterday, and I did I did want to point out or ask you. Um, for, for whatever reason, like Cam Newton evokes a lot of fresh memories for college football writers, I think in a way that like other other players that have been in Super Bowls recently haven't because he had such right. a single dominant performance. Um, just from a number standpoint, before we get into the other, uh, this is going to be our question show. It's kind of like we're going to do this, try and do it like maybe quarterly uh, or maybe more as we run out of content. <laughs> um, but before we jump into that, I wanted to ask you numerically, what stands out to you? What do you remember from crunching numbers that season on Cam Newton? Um, spending the first, like, two months of the season saying Auburn was massively un- uh, overrated uh, because they were barely beating a lot of relatively average teams. And then um, they kind of ended up becoming one of the prime cases of, you know, somebody a, a team that becomes its record, like the K-State team a couple years ago, like total smoke and mirrors in 2011 and then legitimately good in 2012. Um the, the more you win, the more confidence you get. There are all these quote-unquote intangible things that will eventually perhaps show up in the numbers uh, if you can just keep winning and keep playing really well. And, and so um, that 2010 team was the, the perfect and, – and, of course, the 2013 was almost as perfect uh, in that same regard, except that team lost early in the season. So, um, you know, it really is – uh, an interesting phenomenon how how a, a season plays out and and I actually I mean I don't pay that much attention to the NFL but uh, the, I I know that you know the football outsiders guys and other numbers guys were saying the same thing this year halfway through the season Carolina was a terrible undefeated team uh, and the second half of the season they were an awesome seven and one team so um, 
you know, I, apparently that has that, you know, apparently that's when you have an Auburn player in, uh, in, in, a, in influential position, uh, weird things like that happen. And, you know, I don't know how to qualify stupid sports debate. I don't know if it's stupid. I feel like it's stupid when people say, what's the, what's the greatest player, single greatest performer. I don't know how to, I've, I've learned and, and still don't know a lot about this game. And I know that it changes so much just by every five, 10, 15 years. I mean, it's, it's funny just to really drive this off into a ditch. I found an old Atlanta Falcons playoff game recently on YouTube from 1991 <laughs> uh, where they beat the Saints, and I watched the whole thing. This is a couple months ago. And what struck me was the, just the, the way the game has changed so much in terms of style, in terms of technique. I don't know how you say, like, so-and-so. You know, I don't know how you compare Red Grange and Cam Newton. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that means. I think that's just something for people to do in bars, I guess. But I will say that I don't know if I've ever seen such a such a dominant and convincing anything as I saw from Newton. And the two memories I'll always have is I got married the day that Auburn beat LSU in 2010, <laughs> and which is like a big deal because I got married in Louisiana and we had it timed just right. So like as I was lining up to take pictures with my groomsmen, he was just charging down the field on the planes to beat those guys. And then um, a week later, after I got married, uh, some friends invited us down to Oxford at Ole Miss at our alma mater, and I stood on the sidelines. I wasn't working in the media, and I stood on the sidelines just to the left of the coach's box for the entire game with a friend of mine who worked at Ole Miss. And I watched Cam. I think they, I think they won that game by 42 points or something. I watched 20. Just, really? That's it? <laughs> 51 to 31. I'm looking at their schedule. Oh, that had to have been junk time. That ha- those old, those old miss points had to have come in junk time. I just have this this vivid memory of the first, second, and some of the third quarter standing on the sideline and just being absolutely blown away. And I've seen a lot of SEC football in person, um, just coming up through the media. And that that's the one thing that'll always stand out to me is just like how fleet of foot and powerful that dude was. Um, so yeah, that's about as close as the NFL we're ever going to get on this show. Yeah, it was forty four seventeen after the third quarter. Yes, exactly. Okay, at which point we all marveled and then went back to consuming alcohol. Man, I don't remember this game at all, but it was fun as hell. Apparently, Jeff Scott scores on an eighty three yard run, twenty seven seconds into the game. Yep. Uh, Auburn responds. Auburn scores on a sixty eight yard Ontario McCaleb run. Uh, Ole Miss responds with a field uh, with a touchdown. Back and forth, back and forth, and then suddenly the fourth stops, and it's just Auburn, 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 Auburn. But uh, oh, there's a kick return in that game, too. So, yeah, you got a, you got a good uh, vantage yeah. point for a good game there. Yeah, and standing on the field, you get this weird it, – it's a very weird – if you ever get a chance to do that, by the way, just do it. I don't care if it's the – the NFL, it's even it's even crazier, and you usually can't stand there during the game. Um, the NFL is much more restrictive. But just stand on the sidelines if you ever can, even if it's a JUCO game. The, the speed of the game, it always amazes me what coaches can see on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah, that's the part that always, like – I don't understand how you see anything when you're looking directly horizontal – um, and you can't even hardly see half the field. But. There are some coaches who swear by it, absolutely swear by it. And I don't know if that just comes from like decades of, of learning how to see things we don't. I don't know. I don't know if it's just all BS, honestly. It, is, it does lend to one of my favorite things, which is when, you know, occasionally you'll get a coordinator or somebody who moves from the field to the booth or from the booth to the field, and that's a guaranteed um, – endorsement from the fan base like oh yeah, yeah, yeah he needs to go up to the booth you see the game so much better up there you can't really blah 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 and then he moves down to the field oh well you just, you just can't you can't touch the players down up up in the booth <laughs> you you have to get down on the field it's just it, you have to do that and 
I always love the, the, the back and forth there. But I did see the only coach I've ever seen who would switch it, it during a game is Pat Narduzzi. I saw that happen at the Big Ten Championship game, and I was informed by some people at Michigan State that that's not the first time that had happened, where he would get mad, <laughs> throw like like make a, an audible like like a commotion is the word I'm looking for in the box, <laughs> leave during the game, out of the box, and then the next thing you know he's down on the sideline screaming at people. So like if whatever works, I mean he can't really do that as head coach. I mean you could do that as head coach though. I just cut I myself off. I think you could do that as head coach. Well, I just, I mean, it, well, the funny part about that too is it takes you like nine minutes to get down to the Hell field. So, like, yes. by the time yes. you're down there, you've missed like two possessions. The game could have completely turned by the time you get down yes. to the field. But yeah, people should realize uh, elevators are held for coaches at um, at the half. Yeah, and and then at the very at, at the very end of the game. So, like, as the coaches in the box usually don't get to be on the field as the tick as the seconds tick off. They're they're they get to the field much later. So. If you were to do that, like Narduzzi did, you have to take the elevator down with all like the schlubs like me or the drunks in the in the luxury suites who are going to smoke a cigarette or whatever. So, I would have loved to have been on that elevator with Pat Narduzzi. Come to think of it, um, we this is going to be a shaky transition, but we asked for questions and really good questions and really, really like not obscure but specific questions. And for the most part, I think you guys did pretty well. Is there one you want to start with in particular, Bill? Um, are we starting with Twitter or email? Um, your call. This is the loose um, show. Obviously, we're on. Re- and just to put everything in context, we're on recruiting Eve. Um, as I, as soon as I finish this podcast, I'm going to go in bed with a staff for the next day and a half. So I'm not going to um, have any any bonds mot for for anybody as far as so and so's flipping or, or any of that kind of. That's just not what I do. We had butt on last week, and we don't know what to say about signing day because it hasn't happened yet. So in this weird space, we're just going to answer questions, and we'll be back next week with maybe some I don't know information about recruiting. Uh, well, actually, we'll start with the email because those are the big ones, and this will allow uh, us to get a few more Twitter questions in the meantime. Yeah, so. let's do it. All right. So the first one, and this is from a couple weeks ago that we just that I marked to save. Um, from our friend Joey at From the Rumble Seat, um, he says, how would the recruiting and overall landscape of college football change if teams were penalized in the APR for their play, for the players that depart for the NFL draft before completing their undergraduate degrees? There are some schools out there that have really thrived on bringing players in who they know won't be there a full four years. What if those players leaving early were to penalize those schools? Would they recruit differently? Would it add an extra element of parity in college football? Uh, perhaps even counteracting the quote-unquote inevitability that Alabama has started to impose on all of us. Um, well, I mean, obviously, a it would it wouldn't happen, but mm. you know, uh, you know, there are certainly. Um, what do they do in the APR? They they basically try to they make sure you're on pace for your degree when you leave, right, or something of that nature. I know that's how it works in basketball. Yes, the the APR stands for academic progress rate, and I can give you all the bullet points. Having written a couple stories on this, essentially, the APR exists to show that every individual student athlete that's active on your team is on progress for a degree. That is the simplest way I can explain it. So, in basketball, if you are a uh, large uh, historic um, institution south of Ohio, north of Tennessee that prides itself on guys who are going to be in the NBA like nine months from the time you sign them, you still have to make sure even as, um, as much of a prop as it is that they have to be not only enrolled in class, but completing whatever percentage it is towards a degree. 
So in other words, you can't just have a guy enrolled for a semester, he takes 15 hours and fails it all, and then declares for the draft the next semester. That would hurt you. These are super simplified terms. Um, so every, every, and then they measure this by anyone who receives any kind of like academic scholarship. Um, so there's like a point system. And again, okay. I'm trying to stay very simple here because there's a lot of loopholes involved, but basically like you get a point for staying in school, you get a point for staying academically eligible. Um, you get a point for X amount of progress towards the degree per semester as it's determined. And then all those points are added up. Um, and then basically, I think they add it up and multiply it by like a hundred or a thousand or something like that. And then you get this number, this number has to be, uh, a certain level. And I've got it looked at. It says, uh, currently teams must earn a nine thirty four year average APR a nine forty average over the most recent two years to participate in NCAA championship. So, so that's the baseline. So you have to keep this score above a certain amount. If you want to stay eligible to, uh, compete in post seasons. This is, again, really simplified, but I just want to speed this along because we could spend like two shows on APR and how people screw it over and how you can get around it and all this other stuff. But by, I would say by and large, one of the, it is one of the few things I've seen the NCA Institute in the last 10 years that is necessary and welcome and kind of effective. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything else where, you know, it's impossible to create a truly great measure for this. And so you settle for a decent measure. And so, I mean, I've, I've read plenty of articles about all the flaws with the APR, um, but it's kind of, you know, perfect versus, perfect as enemy of decent. And this is decent, and, and it seems to have at least a little bit of an effect. Now, I mean, obviously there are schools that, you know, with, with minimal resources that get crushed by APR uh, for things that are and are not in their control, really. But at the highest level, you know, it does make sure that you are that, that guys aren't just going to school to play football and not actually uh, even pretending. You can pretend to to make progress toward, towards your degree, but you have to at least pretend, and, and this helps with that. So there's uh, a, you know, it, there's a it it usually encourages you, and maybe this is the social critique because you see it happen a lot in schools like you said that aren't financially able, but also you see it a lot in the SWAC. Guys right. who have any kind of history, and I'm, I say guys because I'm just talking about football, discipline history, guys, you th- your players you think might, might cycle through your program just like they did at a major program, you're going to get punished if they get arrested and you boot them. because Not because they got arrested, but because they didn't finish the semester. Yeah. And so what, if, if they don't make it as football players to the spring semester as academically eligible, that's going to be a penalty. And so... You see that happen a lot. Now, if you leave a program while you're academic, people are asking, well, what about the what about the Kentucky thing? If you leave the program academically eligible, or if you are Bill, who's the top rated junior that's coming out in the draft? I have no idea. Bosa, um, probably. Yeah, yeah, like Bosa or, oh, or Tunsil. Yeah, Tunsil. Bosa or Tunsil. If you leave on good good terms academically, that does not hurt your the institution that you're leaving from. So it doesn't necessarily – it's not like it's discouraging kids from leaving early. It's just you have to leave on, on, on good academic standing if, if you don't want to hurt your institution. So in, in regard to Joey's question, then the idea is that, you know, what if, uh, if they – not only have they not progressed towards a degree, but what if they just – they leave before earning one or if they, they go pro before earning one? You know, I, I do think that violates the spirit of, of the rule in a lot of ways, but – 
um, I mean, just kind of playing it out, it does basically mean that Alabama and other schools would have to make sure that they are only going after so many kids who are going to stay three years, uh, which means you're signing a lot, you, you know, you'd be signing a lot of the, the kids who are, you know, either who either assure you that they're going to stay four years or work towards their degree in three and overload in the summer or whatever. Or you just, yeah, you're, you're going to only go after so many five stars and you're going to load up with as many, you know, you're going to make sure you sign a few bookworms per class. Swimmies, as they're called in college basketball. Okay, sure, yeah. Swimmies is a turn, it's in a Tom Wolf book called I Am Charlotte Simmons, but it was actually based off of some, one of the, I think Duke maybe, where the basketball teams, you know what a swimmy is. Uh, this may be a regional term, but those like inflatable things you stick on the arms of kids in a pool. Right. Right. That was, that's what they used to call academic kids that they would sign for academic insurance for team GPA on basketball teams. They would call them swimmies to keep you afloat. Interesting. We yeah. call them floaties. Floaties, swimmies. Same, okay. Same yeah. Pur- same purpose. Go ahead and treat us um, and let us know how that falls. That, that sounds like a soda Coke debate or pop debate yeah. uh, on, on provincialism here in the U S um, I don't like this idea because um, I don't know if anyone else can offer this as, in the media, but I had an opportunity in college and took it. To go, I took an internship when I was in college at a major magazine, and I stuck around with the magazine a little bit after my internship and debated not going back to college. Um, it's not the same as taking a lucrative contract in the NFL or the NBA, but what it is is a chance for me to expand my career without necessarily having the piece of paper. Ultimately, I went back and got my degree. Um, there, you know, the rest is history. Whatever. But I wouldn't want to punish anybody for doing that. I wouldn't want to punish an institution because I was—I had kind of won this internship and competed for it um, because of the help I received by by people in the academic side of my institution. So I, I don't know if I like this. And if you start encouraging APR to have a mathematical advantage for schools that create graduates, you're going to see a degree farm spring up. That's just—it's just—I mean, right. that's the moral ethics area. It's going to—it's. There, there will be schools that find a way to churn out degrees even easier and faster if you make it an imperative in the APR to, to give a guy a piece of paper. It will right. happen. Right. You want to you make sure you're enforcing the spirit of academics and degrees and not just the um, – you know, it's like the you know, everybody complaining about the – what was it? The No Child Left Behind stuff a while back. Like the, you know, the, more you in, it, the more you emphasize standardized testing, the more fi- – people will just figure out how to, you know, instead of teaching, how to make sure you get good standardized test scores. Exactly. Especially, and, and the problem there, I believe in certain states was there was financial incentive and state funding involved, right? right? There was a, yeah. there, there was massive incentive. Yeah. If you give someone incentive financially or structurally or, or especially in, in the, in the APR's term, it's, I guess you could consider it a competitive advantage just because you keep a full scholarship allotment. People are going to rig that system. That's yeah. just, that's just life. That's just how things work. So um, I think it's great when people get degrees. I think it's awesome when they go back and get degrees. Um, My simple answer for this is if you were a letterman or if you produced as a student athlete in a a revenue-generating sport over a certain amount of time, that you are entitled to go back and get your degree for free from that institution 25 years after you leave. That's yeah. that, that's what I would propose because it sounds like I it sounds like I just made a very expensive proposition. I did not trust me. I did not because the amount of people I'm talking about between football, basketball, um, I guess it's just those two. If you talk about revenue, 
Um, for those people to go back, you're talking about a very small percentage, and then you're talking about an even smaller percentage that would take you up on that offer. But yep. if you're a guy who feels like your junior year, you've got a third round grade, you want to go, and you end up in the and you end up in the NFL as a fifth round pick, and you go for the league standard, or maybe even a year past that. So we're talking three years and change. Okay, take away taxes, your agent, your lawyer, relocation, home, all that stuff. You're not going to be that rich. And if you decide after seven years of maybe you go back and try and sign as a free agent, you go to the CFL, whatever. You go and try and sell used cars when you go home. You want to go and get your degree. You should be able to do that free of charge because you tackled people for that university and made them a lot of money for two or three years. That's, that's my suggestion. Yep. I'm in. So now we uh, switch to the next user question, which th- this one was, I, this made me very happy. Uh, we now get to talk about San Jose state for a few minutes on this show. Let's do um, it. Uh, I have a question that I can't seem to wrap my head around. Why is San Jose state so historically bad? Uh, some of it makes sense. Uh, the program only started in 1950. It's not a particularly great school academically, and the California state system isn't as prestigious as the University of California system. But it still seems like SJSU punches below their weight. I can't figure out how a school in the nation's 10th largest city in a talent-rich state like California has spent more time being compared to Idaho and New Mexico State than Nevada or Colorado State. The two other, uh, the two other California state system schools in the NFBS have been historically better uh, Fresno State is a much more difficult place to recruit to, and their highs have been really high, uh, 2001 and 2013, with a handful of pretty good seasons sprinkled in. San Diego State was great in the mid-'70s, dropped off, but they've gone to six straight bowls. SJSU had two good seasons under Claude Gilbert, 86-87, uh, one very good one, 2012, uh, but that's it. And I would figure that SJSU has more going for it than either of those two schools. So what keeps San Jose down? Is, does the Bay Area not turn out as good of talent as Los Angeles? Are Stanford and Cal just so big and important that SJSU gets lost in all their business? Is it too much of a commuter school, bad hires, administration problems? Uh, thanks for reading. So. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this is, by the way, this, this verifies, this is what, when I get into my off-season previews and it becomes a little bit of a slog here and there and I run out of steam, I remember that at least one person that is, that, uh, is reading my preview about San Jose State or North Texas or Eastern Michigan or whoever, uh, this is podcast ain't played nobody, so I had to m- mention Eastern Michigan, cool. um, at least one person reading that cares deeply about the team I'm writing about and will probably read what I'm writing. And... Um, and and this uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Martin here uh, cares deeply about San Jose State. So you got any opening thoughts or do I dive yeah, in? Yeah, no, I've got opening thoughts. Um, the first thing that jumps out at me is that they I, I did a, just a little bit of cursory research on this, um, and, and I will find a better answer. It just may not happen in this particular program. Um, San Jose State has a pretty, uh, a, a pretty decent set of academic standards for admission. I think one of the things he touched on is not necessarily true that Cal and, and Stanford suck in, you know, whatever whatever turn of phrase he used. Um, I think Stanford's operating, especially in the last ten years, on a different plane. You know, it's it's not it's not fair to compare them just because they have football teams at D one. Um, I I will say this: I have visited Cal a couple years ago. I've talked to coaches that have worked at Cal. Um, the entire structure and the entire system of getting kids academically eligible at Cal is very tough. If you're part of the state system in California, it doesn't get a ton easier. Um, that would be the first thing, knee-jerk reaction that I would look at. The second thing would be apathy and budget. 
Um, those things are going to weigh heavily. Also, these are schools that the Fresno thing I would have to take a look at. I think the, the, the easiest answer as to why Fresno has had some success or limited success is that they were a little bit more dedicated to football and that they scheduled very aggressively, but they did it in a very smart manner. They followed that sort of Southern Miss model of the early aughts and late 90s before Boise was Boise. And I think San Jose State didn't have that kind of emphasis because I'm sitting here digging through old schedules. They were very content to play the Patsy in games that they had no shot at. It, I don't really see a lot of historical one-and-ones here. It didn't look like they had a lot of exposure. Um, but you know what? Um, we could probably find some coaches that have worked at San Jose State and better answer this question because all I'm doing right now is giving you sort of generic knee-jerk Um but I would say that so, I would say money would be the shortest way to answer a very to, to cap this very long answer. Yeah, and I mean the Bay Area isn't going to be as football friendly as the Los Angeles area. But uh, you know, uh, and and I guess <laughs> my first thought of anything Bay Area related is is expenses, um, and how expensive is it to just live in San Jose or anywhere close? Uh, but I, I, I so a couple of years ago for the book I talked to for my book that is I talked to Mac uh, Mike McIntyre. Uh, Mac McIntyre, and uh, he he talked about when he took the San Jose State job. I asked him like that seems like a pretty hard job. Not you know guys hadn't won there very often before you took it. So what was your thinking? And his thinking was basically there are only whatever it is X number of of FBS teams in California. Uh, everybody recruits California, but we're closer. So why you know if if we just you know focus really really hard on on local recruiting. Uh, it seems like there would be, and if we're good at it, it would seem like there's enough talent here to win some games. And, and that's very, very, very simple. And I'm sure every person who was hired at San Jose State had a similar thought, but he actually was able to do it. You know, he he um, he inherited a 2-10 and ten team, had a terrible first year, went 5-7 and seven in, in his second year, went 11-2 and two in his third year, and he was gone. So that tells me that part of this is probably bad hires. Just because, it, I mean, he McIntyre proved you could – build a pretty decent base of talent there pretty quickly. And, and even Ron Carragher, his, um, his successor, he inherited, uh, you know, they, a lot of those guys, McIntyre guys left, I think after Carragher's first year, he went three and nine, but last year he went six and seven and signed a, a like a top 60 recruiting class, best in the, either best in the mountain West or second best behind Boise state. Um, so if he does that a couple times, the, it, it would certainly seem like they'll have enough talent to compete. But when you look at, you know, you go back 30 years, like they had, you know, as I pull up college football reference here, like they had Jack Elway in the early eighties. He yep. won, he went nine and three, one year, eight and three the next. Claude Gilbert had a couple good years. Uh, couldn't really maintain it, but Terry Shea comes in, goes nine, two and one. He leaves after two years, Ron Turner goes seven and four and then moves on. But, you know, you make enough coaching hires, which maybe speaks to money that they couldn't keep these guys more than one to two years. Um, that John Ralston never got going. Dave Baldwin never got going. Fitz Hill never got going. Dick Tomey got going a little bit and then kind of ran out of gas because he's like 118 years old. Um, and McIntyre did well. Carragher might do well. So, I mean, I think just generally speaking, they had to make a ton of hires mm-hmm. um, and they didn't do well on some of them. I think, and, it's, I think we're all right here. I think, all, I think almost everything is right here. And this speaks to it's not really a convincing answer for the listener. But I think what we should hit on here is that sometimes apathy creates a cycle at every level. On-field performance, recruiting, finances, hiring, all that stuff. 
And until you have someone come in and break. Now, we, Bill and I not being from California, can look at this objectively in 2016 and say, hey, there's talent there. They are a Division One school. They should be doing better than X, which is what McIntyre basically did. I don't know if that explains away 30 years, but I, I, it's, it's very easy for, this, for, for malaise to build, especially when you're not a brand. It reminds me well, so much of like what Bryle said for you know about the, the previous twenty some odd years before he got to Baylor. Yeah, you know the fact that it's also a commuter school that means um, less of a, a, a base of students next to the state living close to the stadium who can walk. You have to basically when you don't have the that student base really close by, you have to convince people to come to your game. It doesn't yes. become necessarily a a tradition like uh, you know like it would if you live a 3 minute walk from the dorms to the stadium. So, um that's an extra step. And and yeah, I mean without knowing anything about immediately about their donor base or anything like that, basically hard jobs stay hard. And this one is it it, it appears that you can win there and guys have a little bit but if you have these all these obstacles built in then you know if your attention slips a little bit your product slips a lot so I think, I think there's something to be said bill for when you're a mid-major or a g5 however we want to classify it right now there i think there's sometimes a benefit to being in a more isolated area you know i, I won't use like app and georgia yeah. southern as examples because they were they were fcs until so recently but i think it's easier to build like just thinking about Fresno, it's easier to market that. You're the only, I mean, I hear this all the freaking time from athletic directors all the time and coaches too. Oh man, you know, it's tough there. You're not that you got to compete with the blanks and the blanks. And they're talking about like NBA teams and stuff going on in the city. And I'm thinking to myself like, what? But we live in a vacuum because it's all college football all the time. So if you and I were walking around the city of Cincinnati and we had the choice between a Bengals game or a Reds game or a Bearcats game. Well, we're going to go to the Bearcats game because we're insane college football people. But they, um, ads and marketing people, swear by that problem. So maybe no, it's real. I mean, yeah. you think about a lot of the schools that that have the giant attendance. They're in not maybe not small towns, but like Tuscaloosa and Lincoln and Norman and these areas where. Um, your end of, your um, athletic uh, entertainment budget is not split. Uh, you don't have to decide, like even at Missouri, like y- y- you're deciding, you know, a Chiefs game or Missouri game or Cardinals, uh, you know, Cardinals season tickets or Missouri season tickets. Um, Nebraska is deciding between Nebraska season tickets and Nebraska season tickets. Um, I, I, that's sort of true. I, I knew a couple of guys who, who are also Chiefs fans. And, and so they, you know, they do both every weekend. But yeah, but that's um, pretty for, rare. But yeah, I mean, for a lot of people, it comes down to how many options you do or don't have. And and obviously, if you're um, if it's a commuter school in the Bay Area, you're going to have a lot of options in a given weekend. I mean, I did that piece in L.A. in October, and it was it is amazing to think about the number of options you have besides going to a USC game on Saturday night. I think people maybe we should create a metric on on SB Nation about I don't know how you do this without really pissing off some nice people, but. The whole commuter school thing is real. It's very real. I I have probably said this on the show before, and I know I've written about it on Twitter, like going to MTSU and what Rick Stockstill has built in terms of consistency and looking in the stands and seeing like 900 people on a Saturday right. afternoon. That's insane. Like the city of Murfreesboro is really big. It's a very, very big exurb of Nashville. Um, same goes with Bowling. Bowling Green couldn't sell out the Cusa title game against Southern Miss. It was shameful. I was driving to the Big Ten title that day, and passing through Kentucky and saw so many people with Lamar County, Mississippi tags. 
and then you get there and the home team couldn't sell out a home game? Yeah. It's insane. So the short answer for that is for decades and decades and decades, you were a Kentucky fan or a Tennessee fan and you went there at night school or you went there like to finish off a semester or get a, get a master's or an MBA or something part-time. You don't have any affinity to those places. Whereas like I grew up a Georgia Southern fan because when you're in that part of Georgia, there is nothing to do. There is nothing to do but spit gnats out of your mouth or cheer for Georgia Southern football. And I think Fresno, California is a very good example of that. Fresno State has built a culture in that central California region because you can't go to a Giants game, because you can't go and hang out in the Mission or, or you know, even in San Jose, there's a million things to do. It's Silicon Valley. So I think these are not great football answers, but I do think they lend themselves to painting a bigger, clearer picture, I hope. Uh, can you name me the most successful G5 program in a major city? Is it Cincinnati? Um, well, I mean, it depends on your definition of major, I guess. There's Boise, obviously. Um, and Boise, the city, I think is more – I really do think if you go to Boise, it is a city and it is growing. Um, it, it's one, I think it's one of the fastest-growing metro areas in the U.S., but it wasn't like that when the, when the Broncos started. And also, again, you're in Boise, Idaho, and, dude, I've been there three times. <laughs> three, you're three hours from nothing in every direction. And so yeah. I think, again, that helps the Broncos. People move to Boise from all over the country and say maybe I was a Notre Dame fan or I was a Georgia fan or whatever, and then they just start pulling for Boise as the local team. So really the answer for SJSU is to, build a, to, to paint their field blue and gold, <laughs> first of all. Start there. Um, no, in San Diego State's an interesting one too. When they, you know, they were terrible for it seemed like decades there in the '80s and '90s, except for us, you know, the the brief run in the early '90s. Um, between what the '80s and about 2009, they were mostly bad. And uh, you know, the immediate thought there is, how could they possibly be bad? They're right there in Southern California. They've got all these uh, recruits nearby, but that clearly isn't an answer in and of itself. They, I mean, they're doing really well now. Um, as well as they've been able to sustain, I think, since the 70s. But, um, but it took a long time. And you, you have to make a couple of good hires in a row. Uh, and, and you just have to, you, know, you got to do a lot of things right, even when you seem to have a really nice recruiting base. I would say this. If I'm, a, if I'm the next Tom Herman, next James Franklin coach that's not afraid to get out and aggressively court media, call radio stations, not really pull stunts, but, but be proactive in that area, I would take that job in a heartbeat. The San Diego State job? No, the San Jose State job. Oh, San Jose. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would take San. And also, if if San Diego ever moves on from Rocky Long or they want to get more aggressive, same same deal. You do have a large city you can recruit to. You can bring it. I mean, to see what Herman's done at Houston, to see what Franklin did at Vanderbilt, because they came in, they saw framework that they could they could work with, and then they saw an underserved an underserved consumer base. And then they just started working it, radio interviews and, and, you know, season ticket holder stunts and crap and all. I mean, that's what you have. You have to be that kind of coach to succeed there. You can't be, you cannot be the Justin Fuente guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like, uh, part of the problem is there aren't many Tom Hermans. And I don't want to overstate Tom Herman. He's had one good year technically as a head coach. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're completely sold on him, obviously, but, um, it's hard to find somebody who like the, the coaching skill set is already so weird. Mm-hmm. The things you have to be good at in terms of organization and deep analytical uh, hours at a time thinking 
that guy isn't always going to be very good at the at the quote unquote stunts uh, and doing and selling people on the program and 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 glad handing like a politician. It's really hard to find guys who are good at all of those things. You know what? You know what program I keep thinking about in relation to this North Texas should be, yeah. should have a better history should than they do. Be awesome. Yeah. And and we'll see. We'll see. Um, we got a couple. You want to do a quick Twitter question before we go back to email? Uh, sure. Um, there are a couple funny ones in here. Um, let's do, uh, okay. I actually have, this is legit here. Uh, at Hutch and go, uh, Huntley Johnson asks, if you were running a program with what restaurants would you build on campus to establish a recruiting advantage? So uh, there's a real reason I, I, I picked this question. One is that there was a false, maybe not false, um, photo floating around on one of the Baylor pay sites last year that Waco was getting a series of chain restaurants, most of which were pretty ubiquitous in the, in the you know, suburban United States. But if you've ever been to Waco, there's nothing to eat. <laughs> like it's, there's not a lot to do in Waco, but there's also, you know, they've built this palace of a stadium on the Brazos River. And then like, ah, gosh, I think I ate in an Applebee's one night when I was there this summer. And I think I ate at a local place called George's, which is really good. But I mean, it's, the point is, if you're a young kid from an urban environment, that, that, that is going to possibly scare you away. So this is a real thing. Also, I went to college in Mississippi and I remember, I, no, I mean, I remember when Oxford got its first chain restaurant. I remembered when, when the Applebee's opened on West Jackson Avenue in Oxford, Mississippi. It was 2001, maybe. And then I remember when the Chili's came in, when they got a new Walmart, like a real Walmart, not the brown fa- facade Walmart. I, and, and to this day, when I go back to Oxford, people say, hey, we got a blank. And it's always like a Home Depot or a Chick-fil-A. Uh, That's um, funny. Or a Crystal. That's funny, just because like I, I grew up in Weatherford, Oklahoma, a town of ten thousand, and it was the same thing in this town of ten thousand. Hey, we finally got a Taco Bell. Yeah, and all this, uh, all of this is important because when I would talk to people who are involved in recruiting at any school, they want to not provide the environment that necessarily a lavish, rich, maybe older white tailgater would care about they want to do all that obviously with the game day condos and the historic town whatever and the bar that you went to when you were in law school but they also need to cater to like 17 year old african-american kids who have never been to your town before maybe it's predominantly white um so to actually answer this question i would uh i would go with whatever popular high-end chain is available now these are very hard to do because these corporations don't just put in in small towns they have to show feasibility so it needs to be maybe a step above your um, your Applebee's or, or BJ's or whatever part of the country you're in, you know, uh, Bennigan's. Actually, let me let me go with this answer because when I the couple of years I didn't work in the media and I was working in PR, I'd do stuff with the Tennessee Titans in Nashville. The number one favorite restaurant of the Tennessee Titans in Nashville is the PF Chang's on West End <laughs> Avenue. So I would build a PF Chang's number one. And then I would go for, help me out here, Bill. What's a, what's like a higher end chain? Like high, you're, so you're saying higher than Applebee's and Bennigan's, right? Like a step Cheesecake above Cheesecake Factory. Yes, Cheesecake yes, Factory. yes, yes. Absolutely, great, great answer, great answer. I feel like we're playing the feud right now. Great answer. <laughs> um, because this stuff is dumb, and you're laughing right now, but I swear to God, I've seen recruiting coordinators try and plan weekends in January to, to hide kids from the fact it's freezing cold or there's nothing going on. 
and they would murder someone for a cheesecake factory. <laughs> so this is a no, and this, and is this a makes total sense. Like I, I, I always flash back at this point. Like I'm a, I'm a snob now. I hate chains. I we never try to eat at chains. Yada yada yada. Um, but then I remember at 17 and 21 and tw- even 25, 20. Like I, I think my favorite place in St. Louis when I was probably like. 27 28 was cheesecake factory right so this makes perfect sense even though my tastes have now um matured okay so every every missouri journalist that i talk to who isn't busy huffing their own farts they are always talking about is it shakespeare's pizza (laughs) i tripped yes i tripped up okay shakespeare's pizza i've never had it i'm sure it's divine it is lovely i'm sure it is no doubt um i think they're rebuilding it aren't they Sort of, yeah. Um, they the they are building an apartment complex on top of it, so yeah. they they moved to the um, old Mexican restaurant next door. So the, currently, Shakespeare's is in a building that looks like a sombrero, All right. uh, and they will move back into Shakespeare's in a, in uh, at some point in the if, future. Yes. So if someone were to come to Columbia for the weekend, that I had, I've had people yell at me to go to Shakespeare's that were Mizzou grads. The last time I was in Missouri, which is that Carolina game a couple years ago. Sorry, Bill. Um, yeah. If if I if I were to tell you to go to or if you told me you were going to Mizzou for a game, I would say yeah, try that Shakespeare's place. Everyone talks about it. It does not mean anything to a football player at seventeen years old. It just doesn't. If they're from some small town or some suburb or like, God, who's uh, uh, Sean Weatherspoon, right? Uh, great linebacker from Missouri. He's from Houston. Yes, one of the Houston burbs. Yeah, you, ja- Jasper. He didn't know what Shakespeare's was, <laughs> but if you said, if you said we have, the, how dare you? We, you know, we have the blank and the blank and the blank. He's all over that action. So, no, that's the difference between being attracted to going to a college and then once you get to a college. Yeah, absolutely. Like every every Mizzou junior, uh, you know, will worship a Shakespeare's or whatever. Actually, no. Um, this is a, a just a wee bit of a sidetrack, but Shakespeare's is a little on the expensive side. I didn't fall in love with Shakespeare's till I was out of school. I went with the uh, the Wise Guys Pizza downtown, where you can get the twenty inch for eight ninety nine in the dorms. Um, but anywho, uh, no, you, you know that's you're going to be if I was talking. I'm trying to think where like the very first place I would have eaten in Columbia when I visited. You know, it was probably one of the college places because my parents knew the area, but. I would have probably been just as impressed by, oh wow, they have two Applebee's. Exactly, because that's because that's a more an indicator of size. Um, right. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I think we killed that one, but no, it, it, it was legit. There's like a reason I picked that question. Uh, uh, let's see here. We're gonna skip a couple because they're related to things we're doing in the future. Um, uh, oh, uh, frequent question asker, inventor at inventor of wheel. Um. True or false, fans' disdain for recruiting stems from realizing that in a sport with 120 incredibly diverse teams, history shows only about 10 teams have a true shot to win, actually win the national title based on rankings. True or false? Uh, true, I guess. That feels right. Uh, yeah, I mean, possibly. It's, no, it's really no fun to be told that your class stinks when you think it's pretty good. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I don't think we hate. I think we we um, hate love recruiting. You know, we 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 hate it. It stresses us out, but we we obsess over it still. Mm-hmm. So I don't really think that. I don't think that's the same as hating it or having disdain for it. We we, we it annoys the crap out of us, but we care deeply about it. Therefore, it doesn't really apply. 
people who don't people who go to schools or fans of schools who even their coaches might say, you know, that that so and so is overblown, blah blah blah. It sure is funny when when they see a school jump the recruiting rankings or jump over them in the recruiting rankings, they become suddenly very passionate defenders of NCAA bylaws and you know, accuse everyone of cheating. Um, yep. even though their school is just pulling in the workman like, you know, underrated two and three stars. So you do care. Um, I think reconciling it. Uh, there is, I think maybe the, the essence of this question is it, it, it speaks to the unfairness of um, the lack of parity when you, when you look at college football as 120-odd teams instead of maybe 60 or maybe even 30. Um, I think what would we, how would we talk about college football if we, if we looked at the top 35 to 40 programs versus the top 120 programs like we do? That's yeah. the biggest difference to me because then you start talking about the NFL. Right. Yeah, and at the same time, too, um, Oregon made the national title game last year. Michigan State made the playoff this year. Like, um, the, yes, what ten? You know, if you pick 10 teams, I think Bud was doing an exercise with this, looking at odds. Like, give him these 10 teams and you can have the other 118 and he'll probably win. Um, that's definitely true. But I think there's a randomness in college football, too, that allows for hope. Uh, maybe you don't – maybe you're not going to win the national title. But, I mean, as a Missouri fan, in the last decade, my team was within a, basically a quarter to a quarter and a half of the national title game twice um, with top 30 recruiting or, or worse. So, um, I, you know, Kansas State came really close. They may, you know, there have been a couple instances where if a playoff existed, they probably would have made it. They would have made it a couple times in the late 90s, I think. So it, it, there are pathways to success, and they're just realistic enough. You know you're not probably going to beat Alabama, but you don't always have to beat Alabama. Sometimes somebody else beats Alabama. It's like the NCAA tournament. And you, there, there are pathways to, to at least uh, semi-realistic hope. Uh, yeah, and and so you know, I don't think it's it's not a hopeless situation. It's not a it's not rigged where ten teams are absolutely guaranteed. But yeah, obviously, if you're a fan of one school, you might have to try a little harder to be hopeful than if you're a fan of another. Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, it's I think it just becomes more and more uh, apparent uh, the more and more parity is preached in pro sports in general because it is. A, I mean. You, there's a uniqueness to this. The more and more you see salary caps dominate pro sports where the Carolina Panthers can be terrible and then five years later be the best team in football. So um, if people are looking to translate that to college or maybe they, maybe they, they didn't grow up imbued with a certain passion or you know they, they didn't have a rooting interest for a major program, yeah, I, I can see that. And, and again, maybe to go back to our San Jose State question because we haven't talked enough about San Jose State, maybe that's what breeds apathy. If you grow up and you don't have any kind of history, and, and let's Google it real fast, Bill, so we sound intelligent. I bet it's a pretty substantial undergraduate population there, right? Uh, maybe. I have a point with this. Uh, let's see. I'm look- Undergraduate enrollment. Undergraduate, 26,000 in okay. fall of 2014. Postgraduate, 6,000. Okay. So, yeah, over 30,000. That's probably about what Missouri has. Yeah, okay. And that's substantially more than the school that I went to, who just and they just won the Sugar Bowl. So um, my point is this. You go there, and there's no reason to, in your eyes, you know, maybe you, you grew up and you're a hardcore Niners fan or something like that, and you go there, 
you know, this isn't to speak about millennials. This could be any generation. But if you evaluate something as a fan and you feel like there's no possible way to achieve the feeling or the reward or, or get out what you're trying to put in as a fan, then why invest? I, can, I get always, that. And that's how you build thousands and thousands of, you know, Middle Tennessee State or San Jose State or Eastern Michigan alumni who just shrug their shoulders. I've always wondered about, like, mid-major goals in that regard. Like, I mean, I was excited when Georgia Southern moved up to FBS because I got to talk about them, like Appalachian State, too. And I want, I want North Dakota State to do the same. But at the same time, North Dakota State gets to win a, a, a national title. And, and, yes, it's a second-division national title, but they get to win a national title. Georgia Southern probably won't ever get that chance. Their, their crowning achievements from here on out are going to be winning the Go Daddy Bowl and, and things of that nature. Um, and maybe that's enough. If you if you develop good rivalries and you you know win a lot of games and it and it makes Saturdays really fun, then maybe that is enough. But yeah, I mean, if if you have no pathway towards a national title, then you know do, does it affect how interested you are? This is and, and I can answer that question. The Sun Belt, winning the Sun Belt, winning the GoDaddy is not going to be enough, and that sounds insane. But just for that one program, having grown up in it and knowing people who are big-time boosters, that's not enough. Boise State is so important to college football because there are people with money who do care about small programs at Houston. Houston's not a small program, but relative to Oklahoma or Alabama they are, um, that do care. And they look at Boise State, a team that has never played the national title, a team that kind of feels like the window's closed for a minute, on the playoff at least. Um, they look at them playing TCU in the Fiesta Bowl or beating Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl or beating Georgia, et cetera. All this, they say, why not us? What the hell are they well, and, what and, the and, hell are they doing in Boise, Idaho that we can't do in Statesboro, Georgia? And and there is that path. That's not a national title path. I mean, it, for for as amazing as Boise was, there was maybe one year where they might have made the playoff. And and I'm not even convinced about that. Um but well, I mean, like I asked Harson about it last year, and, and it, I don't want to have a rooting interest, but I think you and I would agree that imagine a world in which Boise just gets there, undefeated, just gets there, circumstances align, and it's a year that they have two good, two good FBS Power 5 teams on their schedule that they beat, and they run the table in the, in the, in the you know, reliably crappy Mountain West, and they get in, Okay. Imagine all the ships that 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 that, that uh, set sail all across college football. People believing, well, Boise did it. Why can't we? Why can't we do it at Houston or Cincinnati or Georgia Southern or you know North Texas or wherever? I think that would no, be I'm, awesome. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm all in on on that idea. I just. Um... I don't know if the structure in place even allows us for that because I, I basically the one time I'm looking at, at Boise State's record here, the one time at the end of the regular season that they were undefeated, like 2010 was their best team, but they lost that toss-up game to Nevada because of the missed field goals. And so yep. they, they definitely wouldn't have made it then. The only years they finished um, undefeated all the way through were 06, and they, wouldn't, they were still kind of an upstart. There's no way they would have had the cred um, to get into the playoff that year. The other year was 09. Um, and so I'm pulling up 09 at the end of the regular season, um, on December 6th, they were sixth in the polls. Uh, they were behind Alabama and Texas, both of whom were undefeated. Uh, TCU was undefeated, uh, at, at number three, I believe. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like, that was the year Boise State beat them. I believe. I think. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to look up 18 things at once. And I think I'm getting half of them wrong. Okay. But well, what about? No, no, no. That's it. That is the year they beat TCU. So it was undefeated Boise beating undefeated TCU. Um, maybe TCU gets into the playoff that year, but yeah. I am not. I am not convinced that the playoff committee would have allowed that. I mean, and if if you don't get in that year, you don't get in. And so, you know that that's that's the biggest thing I've. Um, I'm pretty happy with four teams overall, but if, if somehow if they decide to expand to eight and give that group of five champion a slot, if maybe if they're undefeated or if they have a certain record or a ranking or whatever, um, I'm in because they win those games sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, let me pull up the schedule before I even make this stupid proclamation, but that's what this show is for. Um, and by the way, we're not going to get to everybody's question today. I apologize. Um, We've, yeah, we've gone through four questions in like fifty minutes. Okay, well, it's not okay. The schedule's not entirely out yet, but let's just let's just go ahead and do this. Um, Houston Cougars, twenty sixteen, they open with Oklahoma, a team yep. that just went to the playoff. Let's just say Oklahoma goes nine and three, but they lose to Houston, or let's just say they're ten and two. No, let's go nine and three. Benefit of the doubt. Okay, nine and three, and they I don't know they don't win the Big Twelve, but they come close, and and they win they win important games. Top 20 team. Okay. You have Louisville on their schedule as well. Uh, Louisville would be, uh, you know, uh, above average, decent, I don't know, maybe like third or fourth best team in, in the ACC in a best case scenario next year. Um, they, they win that game. They run the table. What we saw out of the AAC is okay. some of it's going to retract. Okay. So they have uh, – their schedule's not finalized yet, but they would have home games – by the way, it would be a home game against Louisville and a neutral site game against Oklahoma, but it is in Houston. It's the Texas Stadium. So you, the, your home games are UCF, UConn, Tulane, and Tulsa, which are all bad, except UConn. And who they, that was the team they lost to. Maybe Tulsa, that. but yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then their road games, pretty substantial. I think a much improved SMU team at Navy, at Cincinnati, at Memphis. And they win those games, and they're undefeated. If you're thirteen and zero with another win over what might be a pretty decent Temple team again, right? Or there's two or three teams I think you could say that about in the East. Yeah, why not? Or, yeah, US, USF potentially, but it, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So so here, yeah, because they would avoid USF. All right, let's do that because they would avoid USF on the regular schedule. So let's say that Willie Taggart's got like a nine-win team that comes in, and they play him in Houston just like they played um, Temple in Houston and won. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good test case. That's two major conference teams. That's a lot of good mid-majors. This may be can. the best test case we get for a while. Yeah. The only difference, Bill, stay with me, is talking about hope. The, the, you know, the reason why we, I've struggled at Boise in recent years has nothing to do with Boise, and it has to do with how bad the Mountain West got, especially on the one side. And, and when they went to the, yeah. the different scheduling that, with the divisions, like Boise had a terrible schedule. It just... They, there wasn't much they could do unless they were to go undefeated and then win by like 65 every week. So yeah, the, the bottom of the, actually that's the, the mid majors this year, because the bottom of certain conferences were so bad. Uh, the mid major rankings this year in my S and P were no, American was first, obviously Mac was second ahead of mountain West. Wow. And then Sunbelt was ahead of conference USA because the bottom of the mountain West and the bottom of conference USA were dreadful. Absolutely awful. But no, I mean, if, if that's this is a very good test case. I don't, you know, here's where I point out that Houston was lucky this year, yada yada yada. They're not going to get going defeated with this schedule. But if they did, and they didn't get uh, in, yeah, yeah, no, no. For the record, I don't think they go undefeated. No, 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 no. 
Oklahoma's very good. There's uh, Louisville's very good. The AAC is very good. It just you look at it and you're like, all right, you got the hottest coach in college football. Greg Ward's coming back. You won the Peach Bowl last year. They're about Florida to sign, State. You know they're they're about to find the best nose tackle. Probably the best. I think he's a uh, three tech nose tackle in college football in this recruiting class. So, like, hmm, okay. Yeah, if you don't get in, if you go undefeated with that and you don't get in, just create a different subdivision. Here's all right. Here's my question off of a question off of a question. Is this not more fun to follow this sort of upsurge in Houston or Boise than it is to hope against hope as a low tier uh, Power Five fan? If you're like, we always immediately jump to Wake Forest and Kansas, but let's like, I don't know, Boston College. Like to me, this is way more fun. There's way more hope there. You know, your shot may only roll around once every 10 years, but it's there. Like if you're a Colorado fan, what are you getting up for? That's a serious question. I mean, I I feel like people always want to talk about cutting the P5 and the G5 away from each other, but that gray area is too substantial, in my opinion, to, to do that. There's a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are so many teams uh, in the Power Five that were like 80th and worse this year, uh, every year, yeah. in, in any sort of computer rankings. Um, and that's, I, I just hate it because, you know, as I've complained before, I hate, to, I don't want to pick on Wake Forest, but a lot of these, a lot of the Power Five schools are Power Five schools because 50 years ago or 90 years ago, they aligned themselves with the right schools. Yeah. No, not because they actually earned anything on the field. Yeah. Or, or just to watch a, like, you know, what, schools that jumped off the boat at the right time and schools that were left. Like, what is, what is the, show me what the differences between Pittsburgh, Louisville, and Cincinnati are. You know, Pittsburgh gets to go in and recruit with the big ACC logo on their chest, and that matters a lot. So if you stripped all that away and did the old blind item test, I think it, you'd have a lot of interesting responses. Um, so r- real quickly, just so we, we can clear out a couple so of emails. in the ditch. Uh, I want to clear out a couple of emails so we can talk about these really quickly. And if we decide to do it more later, we can. Yes. All right. So after, after we got Ramsey on a couple of weeks ago, uh, I think we both got this email from Andrew Gregory. Uh, last pod, Ramsey brought up a great point about Power 5 schools not using their TV money and failing to pull their weight in conference. Uh, it's acute in the Big Ten, but each conference has teams. <laughs> this actually is a nice segue, isn't it? Uh, that chronically underperform. If pr- promotion and relegation will never happen, uh, could couldn't conferences use their TV money as a way to spur investment? Like, could a failure uh, to produce a certain, uh, I appreciate him using S&P Plus ranking, but any other metric <laughs> here. Uh, over a certain number of seasons result in a reduced share of the network money. Life in the Power Five is tough and cyclical for the bottom teams, but just cashing checks and being homecoming fodder for the other teams wouldn't, shouldn't be acceptable either. Um, mm. that, uh, I mean, mm. while acknowledging that there would, there would be like 118 caveats to this and rules in place and blah, 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 blah. Um, I mean, I, I like the intent. You know, I don't think that, you know, there are, when he mentioned Purdue and, and, you know, pilfering high school coaches and whatnot, um, I, there are certainly schools that are investing more. I, I would love to see kind of a, uh, for, for teams like Purdue or, or, or right now Illinois or whoever, it would be kind of interesting to look at, like, what are you spending money on since you have to break even, uh, since that's, you know, part of being an athletic department or whatever. How, what are you spending money on if you're only, if you're spending millions less on a coaching staff than others? As we listen to Godfrey's uh, housekeeper. Yes, there is a vacuum. In the background. One wall away from me. Yeah, and there's <laughs> nothing I can do about it. Um, um, go out and fight this yeah. woman. Oh. Um, 
uh, I, I don't know if I like this. Um, so we're talking I, about withholding, I do like the intent. I just withholding the I money based it. off of performance. Yeah, basically, like if you are not performing at a certain level, and I like that he uses computer rankings there, so it's not just about you know who went two and six in a given year. Yeah, but so why not dump more money into the underperforming members of your your conference? Because well, I think the idea is there that you can't you wouldn't be able to trust them to use it uh, or, or use it in a way that actually improves their product. Yeah, but this, this, is, this theory assumes that all things are equal, and they're definitely not. That's college football. I mean, if this was the if this was a pro league example, I would support this. But I mean, you you can't hold Indiana to the same standards that you hold Ohio State. What if you set the bar really, really low? Like, I mean, if you're well, I, what I don't school know. are we talking about? in The Big Ten, Purdue. <laughs> Sadly, I keep thinking about Purdue I mean, right now. Other than that, other than Purdue, I've talked. We've talked on the show before about schools that have had. That, you know, that struggle to recruit this time of year because where they are, they don't have a natural recruiting base for, for major talent, all that kind of stuff. But Minnesota played, I mean, performing above expectation right now, I would say. Um, Indiana had just had a great year, touchdown shy, beating Ohio State. Um, you know, uh, Michigan State provided a great model and a great template for what you can do when you don't win on, you know, uh, on signing day, when you're overshadowed in your own state, in your own region. Uh, as you go through the Big Ten, I think, it's way too early to figure out what the hell Rutgers is other than a hot mess. Um, and, and Maryland, probably, again, not enough data. Um, I don't know what, what school I'm re- removing money from. I mean, I do think so, that Purdue has been pretty abysmal in every way. But I don't know if you threaten them with taking money away. Because how is that going to make them better? Well, I mean, it's, it's going to force them to not get that bad. I think that's the idea. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, obviously the bar is going to be different in a lot of places. But at the same time, Purdue, b- by the F-plus rankings that I just pulled up, they would have been eighth in the MAC this year. They're pretty bad. We got that. And there's, but Wake Forest is pretty bad. And, you know, you go through every conference and find the school at Kansas is pretty bad because Kansas made some bad hires and they're up against a lot. And they ran a bad offense with a bad coach in a, in a system, in a, in a conference that – is stacked against them. But Kansas isn't in the Big 12 for football, okay? Purdue, I don't really know what to say. It's been terrible, <laughs> but I just don't see how taking money away is going to really make them any better. They know they suck, too. I'm pretty sure that Purdue knows they suck. It's not like, I, it's, it's, not like it's, it's something where you're, 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 you're breaking a cycle or drawing attention to something. They, they get it. This would have to be accompanied with, like, some sort of breakdown of spending and whatnot. And, like, okay, so you stink. Like, why? Like, Is the assumption, are, are, Bill, that they're hoarding the money? Basically. Like, they're, not, they're either hoarding it or they're not spending it in the right ways. They're not investing properly, basically. They're not uh, investing, I think, is the key word. Well, then, I mean, uh, Purdue fans are mad at Morgan Burke, their athletic director right now, basically for not investing properly. Okay, I get that. Now we're on to something. But, we're, but again, I mean, at the same time, to, they have we, to, we need to take do. it away from just per, just on-field performance. Now, right. now I can I can drill in on this. It just I'm slow and not that smart, and so it took me a second. <laughs> if uh, do you every five years try and figure out how much we, you've put into capital spending, how much you've put into staffing? Is is that what we're talking about? How much how much you've put? You've I, put that's into what you, would, you know. Any sort of yeah, any sort of performance measure here would have to be accompanied with stuff like that. Yeah. And that, that obviously gets messy and gross. And, oh, and that gets scarier, too, because you have, guess what? TCU doesn't spend a, a, a single nickel. When they get money, they actually took a, they took a, a worse deal 
on their non-football basketball, like a bad deal because it was going to be in more households in DFW. Specifically, they are, this is a good example, they are a rising power in baseball, in college baseball. They have found that there is a market for viewership in the, in the DFW area for TCU baseball. Yeah. But all the money that they've dumped in, if you ever get a chance to drive through TCU's campus, it is amazing. I, the AD took me on a tour last summer. It's beautiful. Everything's limestone and gorgeous. And, and just it, it's, it's the kind of Saturday, you, it's just where you want to spend a Saturday. That all came from private money. So if you were to apply this to TCU, they, they are taking the money they get from the Big 12's agreements with ABC and Fox and ESPN and all that, and they are putting it in, in places, well, I mean, they're private, so we don't know exactly where they're putting it, but they aren't putting it into facilities. So you're going to have to go on a case-by-case basis to enforce this. I think what rather than legislate this, what I would encourage is there's a really easy way to fix problems in college sports. It's easier than most people ever realize. <laughs> and that's that you stop spending money on your school. If you are a season t- – I want to find a season ticket holder for Purdue anyway and just talk to them and maybe rub their shoulders for a second and give them like one of those big, <laughs> one of those big guy hugs because I'm 6'5", and if you hug me, you can really kind of fall in. Just a warm embrace. Um, but I would love to talk to a Purdue season ticket holder, someone who's renewed every year for the past 10, maybe stop spending the money. That's, that's the only way you can create a referendum. I think any other legislation is just going to be bonkers. Yeah, I, um, I mean, that was my, with, with Iowa, you know, before this fall when now everybody loves, um, you know, everybody loves, uh, Ference again, but before this, you know, that was my thought. I think in the off season preview was, you know, you, you've fallen into a funk here and it's your own fault because you still draw 66,000 a game. If you, if you didn't show up, they would have to do something about it. Yes. Now, obviously that, that, you know, Iowa's kind of a case study for Purdue as well here in that, you know, football is very random and sometimes things click and, and if Hazel can just, if, if the chemistry is right and, and they start winning games next year, then suddenly a lot of problems are solved. But um, I'm going to go into the last reader question. It's another long one, but I want to, I want to, it to be addressed before uh, we leave here because, well, because uh, Robert spent a lot of time writing it. So go for it. <laughs> this is another perfect segue because it's about Purdue. Um, this is a, 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 also in a response to Ramsey's uh, podcast, which, by the way, we got a couple of emails from about Ramsey's. We got none from Bud. So, Bud, next time you're on, we need to we need to step up here. Um, Bud, Purdue per- should have never had him on. Keep going. Uh, never again. Uh, Purdue is definitely in an interesting position regarding their play. And this is me reading now regarding their place, both uh, financially and performance wise in the Big Ten. They are one of the few schools that runs in the back with respect to their athletic department uh, in the black. Excuse me. A little different. Um, and they do it without a student fee for athletics or any funding from the school. Actually, they, they actually give money back to the school. Um, the Hammer and Rails commentariat is quite frustrated with what exactly is going on, though. Um, we have images of Morgan Burke sitting on piles of cash in his office with cans of Rotel and bricks of Velveeta stacked in the corner. Uh, but it seems like that... The department is want to spend money is want to spend money until it's too late. The renovations to the football facilities are about ten years too late. The best baseball team in a hundred years lost the chance to host a regional because the construction of the new baseball facility got behind schedule due to uh, selecting a bankrupt vendor. Oh man, that sucks. That sucks. Uh, and the upgrades to Mackey Arena added several seats that split up the student section that, to cater to donors that don't show up and put empty seats courtside. I can relate to that mm, one. That one's that's cost doing business. Keep going. 
now, as admirable as it is to make money, the department is ignoring the opportunities to make more money by spending it. The coordinator hires under Daryl Hazel have been baffling, to say the least, and the players they're currently getting do not seem to represent the ability to compete in the near future. I don't think Purdue fans expect to compete for the national title, but they have seen competitive, exciting teams within the last 10 to 15 years that could compete for a conference title and barring a bizarre fumble, a national title. Uh, and want to get back to that level once again. The roster and in incoming class do not represent that ability. Under Hazel, the team has been bafflingly, bafflingly inconsistent and uncompetitive on a, at least one side of the ball every game, usually offense. He has burned three quarterbacks and is on the way to po uh, possibly burning a fourth with one scholarship back up on the roster, um, plus an incoming two-star. Uh, the only re two reliable spots on the roster are running back and linebacker, and both have been ravaged by injuries the past couple of years. If Hazel is truly Black Trestle, as Ramsey called him, uh, he's going to have to coach for his job with a roster that will be lucky to win four games in 2016, given the schedule. He's lost three straight to Indiana. Uh, and God, this is so... Uh, I'm okay, sorry. I, I mean, I, you, you can keep going, but I've, I've already got the answer. Okay. He's lost three straight to Indiana. His only home conference victory is a complete aberration where somehow they won by only 10 with a plus five turnover margin against a second string quarterback and followed their best performance S&P plus wise uh, with their worst performance for homecoming the next week. Aside from stepping up their bagman game in the next week uh, before signing day, it really doesn't look like there's anything that can happen to sway their fortunes for next season unless the team suddenly stops playing sub 20th percentile games. The attendance is already bad. Nothing is being done to help improve the next season, so Burke will only spend less money going forward. My questions are, what should Purdue do, uh, look for as an end game for this season? What about the next five season? And can they realistically make a Big Ten title game in the near future? If, if hope is lost, and let me just say, I, 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 can, I start tuning out when you get into the on-field results because you've already given me enough information talking about the stuff that's happening with with funding, capital spending, with projects, construction, and the staffing of your department. If that, it, it, that's the foundation. Everything else is going to crumble if that's not right. So I don't even care. Um, I, I, although I do think, you talk about causation, that, that, that example of the NSA regional, that's a, that's a great, great example. Wow. Um, that's, uh, that, that but sucks. You, if you as a fan, and this is, this is the corporate reality of, of college athletics in 2016, you're a Big Ten school, if you as a fan feel there is no more hope, if you, if you see a, an endless cycle just constantly perpetuating, it's time to, it's, it's, you got to call to arms. And what you need to do is you need to find your donor base, you need to find your elite donors, and then, and then go down to the, to the rank and file postgrads who just love the team. And, you know, maybe, maybe they have some decent season tickets every year. They maybe give 500,000 bucks or something to the alumni association. Get all those guys from top to bottom, organize and, and demand change. It's not as hard as you think it is because you're not talking about a – this isn't a, a referendum on a presidential election, okay? This is – you're talking about – This is more important. Of course. Uh, this is a constituency that's much smaller and can be much more vocal, and it's just – it's time to get folks out of there. If that's, if that's how you feel, if, if you feel hopeless, I would also, uh, in Purdue's case, uh, get on the local media. Ask them. Create a voice. You know, be the agent of change that you want because I think in Purdue's case, you're not going to see it otherwise. Start moving, start doing something. That's the, yeah. that's the only advice I can give to fans when you're talking about 10, 15 years of frustration. It's not a and sexy answer. Yeah. And what's funny too is um, empowering fans, to also, uh, you know, often leads to terrible decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me throw it real, real quick. 
don't do that bagman thing. That's not how that works. Don't 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 try and you should, your your school is probably already doing that. Yeah, d- don't don't try and cauterize this wound. You, you you've been cut from stem to sternum. Like don't don't no 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 don't do that. Don't do that. Just just focus on the bigger project. Yeah. Don't don't try and hand somebody a thousand dollars this week. That's not going to fix anything. Trust me. <laughs> You're going to get caught. Um, you need to. Uh, just as an aside, I got a message last night that I'll share with this listening audience as we're about to wrap this thing up because I have to go talk to football coaches. I got a legit solicitation um, last night when I was checking into my hotel for someone who's a graduate of an SEC university um, that they want they, – they are moving up in the medical field at a rather uh, quick rate. They're going to be a very um, specific kind of surgeon and make a lot of money. And they want to know how to become a bagman for their school. <laughs> this is my life. We have to. You have to have ambition in life. I got contacted because someone wants to commit. And I, and I guess it's not a crime, but it's like that scene in Office Space where the guy is selling magazines and they actually are trying to figure out how to launder money, but he's just an unemployed software tech. Like that's. <laughs> <sighs> Don't give anybody any money this week if you ha- if in- unless you're a seasoned bagman. Don't just don't try it at home, please. <laughs> and thirty years from now, in the in the sleazy, dingy hotel room, you're gonna be trying to play the new hits, mm. and, somebody, and somebody's gonna say, oh, "Play bagman." College football is one hit wonder, and always will be. I am Duncan Sheik, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Bill, I have to go hang out with some football coaches. You have you do that. You have to, I'm sure, write six thousand words. North Texas preview is coming up in just a few days. Hell yeah. You're on notice, Seth Luttrell. <laughs> That's right. Um, sorry we didn't get to all of your questions. Um, the good thing is we um, – I, I will say this without asking Bill because we haven't gone off the air yet. I feel like we're pretty confident now we're not going to have a lack of stuff in the offseason. Yeah, you never know, but so far so good. Yeah, because we got, what, four questions today out of 20-something? <laughs> all right. Maybe we'll do a marathon session for charity or something one week. Yeah, I get hoarse after ten minutes, so that's going to be a problem. But I'll deal. We'll uh, we'll bring in Ryan Nanny as a there you go sub in. All right, guys, uh, we'll see you next week. All right.